Welcome back to After the End of History. This week's episode is the third and final discussion of our series on Lane's The Peace of Illusions. We wanted to start our podcast with a hardcore realist text, and we found that Lane offered just that. We'll wrap up our discussion by providing some concluding thoughts on how it should play into the left's critique of American hegemony, and we'll reveal the next book under discussion when we pick up episode four. Thanks again for joining us on After the End of History. So the Soviet Union no longer exists. It's been, um, you know, 30 years that the United States has essentially been able to run roughshod over the world with this unipolar perspective uh, as an extra-regional hegemon promoting liberal democracy, capitalism around the world. And it has been able to do this without essentially any counterbalancing force or, um, you know, in a real sense, any regional hegemon to say, no, this isn't you know, the way the world's going to look. I think that's changing a little bit. We'll talk about that. But this all leads into what Lane thinks will happen to the unipolar era in the next few decades. Actually, in 2006, he was saying we would see the end of the unipolar era by now, 2020. His projections are off a little bit, but the fundamental reasons of why he thinks that the United States hegemony is in decline and the end of the unipolar era will occur, those reasons are still true. In other words, explain the reasons why he believes the unipolar era will come to an end. Yeah. Lane thinks that the um, end of the unipolar moment is inevitable because of the fact that the hegemon's temptation is always towards overextension. And there are powerful reasons why the United States, you know, as we've been indicating already, there are powerful reasons why the United States is prone towards this overextension. Right. Everything appears to be a threat. There's a security threat everywhere. There's no, there's no horizon point beyond which the United States will not intervene to protect its interests. Right. And second-tier powers, which, you know, continually grow, you know, relatively more powerful, um, even as the United States' uh, military spending and um, capabilities far exceeds that of others, there will come a time when these second-tier powers are no longer willing to stay out of any possible confrontation with the United States. So the fact that right now these types of states um, basically, you know, bandwagon with the United States, that doesn't mean that great power politics have been banished permanently from the international system. Their um, pure competitors are going to emerge, and their counterbalancing strategies will succeed in offsetting U.S. hegemony. That's one of um, Lane's major, you know, points, is that um, this piece of illusions um, will end and part of the conditions that the you know that the that America the hegemon has created um, will be the parameters in which um, new powers emerge. So he says, over time, a liberal hegemon becomes a victim of the very economic system it put in place. I think, and and uh, to be clear, Lane doesn't believe that there's a moment. You know, we live in a vacuum now, and there's going to be a moment that boom there's counterbalancing that occurs against the United States. He thinks that there have been counterbalancing efforts. They just haven't been full-blown into the execution of hard power against the U.S. In fact, he talks about four different areas where counterbalancing has occurred. He talks about terrorism. I mean, those examples are well-known against the U.S. Soft balancing, which would be more diplomatic in nature. So, you know, the, the we haven't seen many of these, but vetoing attempts by the United States to uh, assert its interests abroad, uh, say at the Security Council, there's opaque balancing, mm-hmm. so it may not be clear whether the country that is counterbalancing is doing 
is actually making uh, decisions that are counterbalancing against U.S. hegemony or just in the economic interests of that country. I think Iran is a great example of this at its nuclear program. And then you have semi-hard balancing, where I think a good example of this would be military conflicts that aren't necessarily opposed directly against the United States, but are in a proxy manner, like in Russia, in Syria, uh, would be a, a good example of that. And we don't have the time to get into all of those tactics, but the main point here is that these things are happening. We live in a dynamic world. Counterbalancing is always happening. It may not be one that brings the unipolar world to an end necessarily, but it shows that appetite and consequence of security, uh, national interests in conflict with one another. And these, these counterbalancing efforts, were only, they will only become more common in time. And one of the key issues that he raises um, in his later chapter is not whether or not this is going to happen, but when it will. And then, That's right. you know, basically deals with um, the unipolar, um, and he basically deals with advocates of unipolarity who are either um, unipolar opti- optimists or unipolar um, agnostics. And um, going through their arguments, he's able to to to... Um, pull apart the threads that um, hold together um, a lot of the American exceptionalist understanding of America's role in this unipolar moment. And for him, the issue of when it will end, or why he is a you know a pessimist in this regard, is that um, he knows he's arguing that the distribution of power in the system will shift as new great powers merge to challenge the U.S. And if the U.S. Um, and so if the U.S. succumbs to the hegemon's temptation, it will become overextended abroad. It's, um, it'll increasingly find itself under fiscal and economic constraints. And Asian countries are going to be likely to bandwagon with China. And the, the period we're living in right now, after the um, COVID pandemic, finds um, the United States in dire straits economically, fiscally, um, having to contend with the prospect of many um, states within the federal government being bankrupt, um, and um, a field in East Asia in which almost all, all the countries have more trade with China than they do with the U.S. And the parameters or the... the, um, the unfolding of this process is becoming a lot um, more clear to us as this crisis unfolds. Mario, Lane, I think, would identify himself in that context as a unipolar pessimist, meaning he doesn't believe that the unipolar moment, that United States extra-regional hegemony, is long for this world. And he's positioned against others, and, and we've talked about how he positions himself against offensive realists defensive realist, but he also has a distinction in the projection of how long the unipolar moment will last. What is that in distinction to? So you have unipolar optimists, for example. What do they say? Unipolar optimists think that American power reached a tipping point after the Cold War, which set the bar so high that the entry costs um, for other states to even conceive of catching up to the United States are um, basically impossible. And so they think that it's like that, a, that the United States is too big to be confronted. Too big to be confronted, enjoys the incumbent benefits of something like a economic monopoly, um, but this being the case of a state with its um, 
you know, superior military technology, that that sets the bar so high that no other state or even um, nor any coalition of states could even sur imagine surmounting it to challenge the U.S. Yeah, this is a, I hate this perspective, to be honest. It's it's really, I think it's fatalistic, and it's one that, you know, it would have readers think, oh, the, you know, the United States is just going to run uh, you know, the world for, for time immemorial. And it's really, I think it's consistent with this, this idea of the end of history. So I really, I want to put that one aside. The one that's more interesting to me, um, and Lane spends a lot more time on, uh, they're the unipolar agnostics. Tell us a little bit about them. Agno the agnostics... Um the unipolar agnostics don't believe that the United States is, is perceived as a threat by um, enough states because of the positive functions it serves as um, a you know hegemonic stabilizer. The fact that it provides a stable currency and international liquidity, the fact that it serves as a lender and market of last resort for other um, industrial nations. The fact that it um, makes and enforces rules of the game and the fact that its military power um, is so formidable to stable and stabilizes the systems provides for these agnostics the reasons why American hegemony is secure. And they basically argue that states will be more worried about their neighbors than the United States in um, performing these tasks of, the, of an international hegemon. So they argue that states don't perceive the U.S. as a major threat because it's not a predatory land grabber like empires of old. And they tend to encourage moderation in U.S. strategic goals. Um, but by working through multilateral institutions, the U.S. diffuses other fears of its hegemonic power. Um, and so they basically think that the world continues to see the United States as, if sometimes blundering, largely a benign hegemon. And Lane is going to um, disagree with both the optimists and the and, and the um, agnostics, and it's important to draw out the reasons why. So, uh, all right. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about what Lane thinks about how long the unipolar moment will last. He was wrong about the projection, but he does have really excellent points to make about why this moment will end eventually. It comes down to overextension. It comes down to the fact that over. Uh, rather, counterbalancing is happening now. We live in a dynamic system, so it's not a question of if, but when. He does, however, have a prescription for the United States maintaining perhaps regional hegemony. Extra regional hegemony may be too costly an endeavor for the United States to continue, and it may be risky. In fact, he says it is risky, as you can see from issues like the attacks 9-11. Um, he thinks that it's a dangerous perspective to maintain. In fact, maintaining extra regional hegemony is more dangerous than reeling back would be. So what does taking a step back in the world look like for Lane? Offshore balancing, which um, is a policy of retrenchment and um, disengagement from some of the longer term, more um, serious military commitments the United States has in places which were the beachhead of the Cold War. And especially in Western Europe, he thinks that um, European countries now more than ever can um, protect themselves, provide their own security um, in ways that will hardly challenge America's um, security. That unlike um, the 20th century in which um, 
or at least the first half of the 20th century, in which European powers were um, driven towards competition with each other and caused world wars, the extent of America's you know, successful stewardship of the economic integration of Europe shows that um, the U.S. could maintain a policy of offshore balancing, of basically making sure there was an equilibrium within the system, um, and as be assured of peace. And that has to do with the fact that the EU is so economically integrated and um, has powerful reasons to maintain peace within its zone that the U.S. could take a step back. And moreover, he thinks that if the U.S. took a position of offshore balancing, it would actually probably relieve some of the tensions between um, Western Europe and Russia that it's really the United States presence which precludes a sort of policy of a, of a greater European peace between Russia and um, Western Europe. Even though there are some still very prickly matters of um, um, Eastern European countries, countries that are in the post-Soviet space, that the um, overall weight of interest in Western Europe towards inter- economic um, integration of Russia, especially through um, providing gas to Western Europe, gas and oil to Western Europe, that the pursuit of a larger European or greater European peace um, is very conceivable, and that the United States could um, relieve itself of many of these commitments while while European countries secure themselves and negotiated the parameters for their own peace. Right. So it's not, this is not a strategy that would be completely foreign to United States policymakers, at least from a historical perspective. It has played the role of offshore balancer in certain parts of history, including the beginning of the Second World War. Now, what does Lane believe offshore balancing will allow the United States to do economically? Will it be able to shift funding to, to uh, relieve certain fiscal issues that lead to domestic turmoil. What is the ultimate aim here? The ultimate aim is um, the United States being able to ensure its security, right? And its security in its own hemisphere, which is not really at risk, right? In any of the, the looming conflicts which we worry about, um, I don't think that anyone in the United States is worried about being invaded, right? or being attacked for no reason. And so this is another powerful um, or important um, sort of reality check that people have to undergo is this the realization that um, everything that makes Americans feel so beleaguered about their place in the world has really not much to do with their own um, security here at home. Americans have never been bombed by another country or maybe some balloons were sent by Japan or something like that in a kind of H.G. Wells like exception that proves the rule, but they've never had this historical experience of being um, bombed, and they tend to overinflate the um, how vulnerable they are. Right. Not to skip too far ahead, but the book ends with what is a pretty mundane conclusion, and that's the United States does not need to pursue a grand strategy of hegemony for its security. Rather, it's because of its geographic position that it is secure. And it should take advantage of that insular position in the world 
to pass the buck and devolve to the EU for defending its own military interests. Do yeah. I have that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he thinks that instead of burden sharing, the United States should be burden shifting and devolving, as you said, the security um, responsibilities that European countries have for themselves. And he also thinks that the U.S. in East Asia should give up some of the um, fault lines or red lines that the United States has traditionally um, um, drawn um, in its emerging um, great power competition with China. So he thinks that the United States should just give up the Taiwan issue. He would um, obviously, this is written in 2006, so this Hong Kong um, business didn't really um, arise yet, but he would say it should give up, um, you know, give up claims to that. And that he should, that the U.S. should basically, in general, in both those pivot points of Europe and East Asia, pass the buck to those who directly benefit from uh, peace in the region. And he also thinks, and this is also important, he thinks that um, the U.S. should recognize Moscow's legitimate sphere of influence in Russia as near abroad, especially in Chechnya and Central Asia um, and Ukraine. Too. I mean, he he and John Mearsheimer were the only you know really notable people to um, criticize America's policy in Ukraine, um, and he thought that, and he thinks that the United States has an important interest in maintaining good relations with Moscow, for one, in uh, as a ally or a um, um, as an assistant in handling um, the rise of China. But it's also a geostrategic linchpin because it could play a role in three different regional power balances. There's the power balance in Europe, right? If the EU arises as a super state, you know, with its own military eventually, it could use Russia to balance against it. Um, in East Asia, vis-a-vis -vis China, Russia shares a huge border with China, so it can play a very important role there and also in the Persian Gulf and Central Asia. So Russia has this linchpin status, yet the United States is constantly demonizing it. Um, and for Lane, this is a clear indication of a lack of strategic thinking in how to handle the demise, or the, you know, you could say, the gradual diminishing of the unipolar moment. One thing I want to mention is that I don't think we're reading Lane because he's someone we expect to take political lessons from. He's going to be able to explain and give us really good historical examples around how the U.S. became an extra-regional hegemon. He's also giving us the theoretical underpinning to argue that the pursuit of global hegemony is not necessarily a singular or unique phenomenon that begins with the Cold War, but rather is something that's embedded in this country and will take something like a revolution to finally overcome it. His sense of what the revolution looks like, though, is idealist. It's an intellectual revolution in the State Department, and the result might be something like the United States being relegated to regional hegemony. His prescriptions might look very similar to ours as well. From a revolutionary standpoint, we might say we would welcome the demise of NATO, the reeling back of NATO. That would be a good thing for the world's oppressed, for the world's working class. 
the United States having less of a militaristic perspective with respect to Taiwan. That would be very good. Any reeling back of military presence in Asia would be very good for the defense of, of China right now. He also makes prescriptions that we would welcome along the lines of Israel. So he is for, I believe, ending the presence of the occupation of the West Bank, as one example. So these are all really good prescriptions, but what they lead to at the end of the day is a comfort with the U.S. being a regional capitalist hegemon. We welcome the defeat of U.S. imperialism, so I think it's very different. And what's absent his political perspective is the motor force of class. And we're not going to expect that everybody be a Marxist that we read, but that's one of the limitations here is that his motor force behind the development of the regional hegemon is something like the ideas of certain State Department elites. And it's not until those State Department elites are replaced or face an intellectual revolution that a more rational administration that pursues peace and democracy will come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could put it this way. Lane takes the position that um, the U.S., the American bourgeoisie should take a more strategically grounded position so that it can... um, secure its national interests and avoid follies, whereas we take a totally defeatist position towards our, our um, national bourgeoisie. And, um, but nevertheless, um, we happen to have the, you know, our, our interests or political goals meet insofar as we want to bring about the retrenchment of the American empire and, um, um, ed- and military adventurism abroad. And also, and this is another important point where there's a lot of common ground with Lane, is that he recognizes, along with many of the other critical diplomatic historians like um, William Appleman Williams and Melvin Leffler and others, that the pursuit of global hegemony has created this national security state, which is very much um, capable of realizing the greatest fears that people had at the start of the Cold War of what, why it was necessary to maintain pressure on the Soviet Union. And, and in, for this reason, in fact, is very much um, an undermine, a force that undermines American democracy. He thinks that, this, that in the beginning of the Cold War, everybody, many of the um, strategists thought that it was important to keep pressure on the Soviet Union so that the the fight against communism would always be away from American shores and America would not become a garrison state. Well, Lane, I I think, argues, or I think that Lane would say that the um, creation of a national security state in the, throughout the Cold War, but now we're seeing some more pernicious manifestations of it since um, the Iraq War, is going to lead to um, the very um, kind of domestic calamities that many of these um, theorist worried about um, during the Cold War, and that Lane is opposed to imperial overstretch because he thinks that this national security state is going to create very pernicious domestic outcomes. Well, I think that's a great concluding point, Mario. I think with that, we can wrap it up. I hope everybody enjoyed this discussion of Christopher Lane's The Peace of Illusions, American Grand Strategy from 1940 to the Present, and that you'll join us next time for a discussion on the Jakarta Method. How do I end this thing, Mario? Do I say, keep it realist? No, that's lame. I'm not going to say that. I'll probably, I'll just edit that out. But what do you have to say? Any last words? Thanks for listening.